We're getting in an elevator. And we are going where? We're going to our fourth floor storage room. <laughs> I'm Asif Manvi, and if you think I know where I am, you are wrong. I am lost at the Smithsonian. We are now in the bowels of the Smithsonian. Yeah, the upper bowels. The upper bowels. Because this is the fourth floor. Luckily, I'm not alone. That other voice you hear is Eric Jentz, the curator for entertainment and sports at the National Museum of American History. I am going to use my ID to open the door. Eric not only knows where we are, he also knows where all the best stuff at the Smithsonian is kept, which is good because I'm looking for 10 objects from American entertainment, one for each episode of this podcast. I want things with cultural value, things with history, things that need to be kept refrigerated? Good God, man, it is freezing in here. We want to keep it cold. Is it supposed to be this cold? It is 68 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not that cold, but I'm Indian, so for me it's very cold. (laughs) This freezing room is full of sports artifacts, including a bicycle just hanging from the wall. The one of Lance Armstrong's bicycle that he rode in the Tour de France. These are seats from Ebbets Field in Brooklyn where the Dodgers played. Ah, What are we going to look at now? Well, I was going to show you this. So we're opening a metal cabinet, and inside are a pair of red shorts with the initials GF, and that stands for George Foreman. George the Foreman. Those boxer. are from the Rumble in the Jungle. Exactly. It's almost a big. What is the waist on that? He was huge. 82 waist or something. The shorts. I'm looking at a a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. This is amazing. It was worn while he was training for the Rumble in the Jungle. When I got to Africa, I had one hell of a rumble. I had to beat Tarzan's behind first for claiming to be the king in the jungle. I don't doubt that some of you already know about the Rumble in the Jungle, but just in case you don't, here's a little context. This may be a historic event. Muhammad Ali coming into the boxing ring for the last time. The Rumble in the Jungle was one of the most important sporting events of the 20th century, perhaps even the most important, depending on who you talk to. It was a boxing match that took place in what was then called Zaire and is now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It was in 1974 between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Foreman was 25 years old at the time, and Ali was 32. So as far as everybody watching the fight was concerned, that made Ali the underdog. But Muhammad Ali wasn't watching the fight. He was in it. And in his mind, he wasn't the underdog at all. This will be the biggest upset since Sonny Liston. And I think it is befitting that I go out of boxing just like I came in, defeating a big, bad monster that nobody could destroy. It's difficult to really wrap your head around how big of a fight the Rumble in the Jungle really was. It's estimated that a billion people watched it on TV. One out of every four humans alive in 1974 was tuning in to watch George Foreman and Muhammad Ali fight for the heavyweight title. This was the golden age of heavyweight boxing. I'm going to stick him. I'm going to be three times as fast. I'm going to punch him at will. For Ali, it was a comeback story. He was trying to take back the title that had been stripped from him in 1968 when he refused to go to Vietnam. The real enemies of my people are right here, not in Vietnam. No, 
I will not go 10,000 miles to continue the domination of white slave masters over the darker people of the earth. Muhammad Ali's career was defined by his conviction. Born Cassius Clay, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali when he converted to Islam. He was outspoken, and the way he spoke was as significant as what he spoke about. Some say his rhythmic poetry laid the foundations for rap. Ali was like a combination of LeBron James, Colin Kaepernick, and Kendrick Lamar. I've wrestled with an alligator. I, have, I believe you completely. I have tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. Now, you know I'm bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. <laughs> Ali was much, much more than a boxer. He was a public figure, as influential and inspirational as any politician, author, or celebrity. Muhammad Ali altered history. Speaking about Ali, Barack Obama once said, he shook up the world, and the world is better for it. Obama even went so far as to keep a pair of Ali's boxing gloves in his private study in order to continue to be inspired by his legacy. So I'm asking God, Allah, to make me strong, not for me. Don't give me no money. Don't give me the fame. I want to win so I can come home and speak for the brother who's living in rat-infested houses, sleeping on concrete, in the ghetto, can't go on television and speak. So God, I'm your tool. I'm your servant. Let me get this man tonight and go out blasting. It's really quite amazing to have here. So back in Smithsonian storage, what looks like an unassuming terry cloth training robe with simple black lettering that says Muhammad Ali, and above is his signature. It's a little frayed at the edges here, a little yellow. Represents an icon and a legend who was the greatest that sports has ever produced. Here comes Ali. You can see him there, very calm. It's age against youth. So you've got these two American, African-American boxers, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali. Ali is, he lost his title. He lost his title, yes. And, and now he was... Try to attempt to regain the title. And Foreman was the current heavyweight mm -hmm. boxing champion. Right. The odds were stacked against Ali right. right out of the gate because he was older, Foreman had, was undefeated. And he's a formidable opponent, yes, for sure. When I meet this man, if you think the world was surprised when Nixon resigned, wait till I whip Foreman's behind. And in terms of the actual, the fight in Zaire, how did that come about? It was with Don King. Uh, I think they had connections with the people in Zaire and thought this would be like this great new sort of mass spectacle that would elevate interest in not only the fight, but also the nation of Zaire. And also, like, you know, they had this big concert and this Brown. James Brown. And in addition to being a major sporting event, the Rumble in the Jungle was also a major musical event. James Brown was there. B.B. King was there. The Spinners were there. And the man who organized this global spectacle? Well, that was none other than legendary boxing promoter Don King. Getting these super giants to come into one fold and do one thing 6,000 miles from home, that was blackness. That was the strength. To accept blackness, to help blackness, to trust blackness, and to associate yourself with blackness. We all are citizens of the world, you know. 
it ain't about us being like we want to be against nobody, but it's about us saying that we are for each other. So that there was this celebration connecting African culture with African American culture that that could be both celebrated and exploited in some ways in order to get people excited about the fight. And I think that at the time that was a kind of a new concept. But in terms of Rumble in the Jungle, considered one of the most important sporting events of the 20th century, why do you think that was? You know, in the long run, there's a lot of big events, but they don't always hold up. So you have this huge audience for a championship fight that was, like, incredible. There's the Ali story itself, and Ali's rope-a-dope finish to that fight, where he got let himself get punched, basically, and tricked Foreman, and knew he had one shot and was able to accomplish it, and that was yeah. huge. Ali's rope-a-dope finish was the key to his victory. He let himself get backed up against the ropes, then used his arms to block as many of Foreman's punches as he could. Once Foreman was worn out, Ali made his move. We'll get into rope-a-dope in a few minutes, but just know it was all about outsmarting his younger opponent. Muhammad Ali dancing around. This will be the national anthem of the country of Zaire. I mean, I know that, like, for myself, growing up in a, in a Muslim family mm. and my parents growing up in India in, in the 60s, and, you know, Ali, the fact that he was this outspoken black Muslim, I think there were a lot of Muslims around the world who sort of took ownership of him in some ways, you know, like he's one of us. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember as a kid the idea of sort of giving the middle finger to colonialism and the oppression by not going and fighting in Vietnam. Why should I go and fight the white man's war? What have they done for me as a black American? So I think there was a real resonance about this fight being in Africa of all places, right? I I think if it had been in America, I don't think it would have had the same impact. Sure, right, yeah. Yeah. The international scope of it was important. And, you know, he won three, he had, you know, lost and won three times the, the belt. So, like... That kind of like just adds to this kind of legacy and stature that he had. Also, so smart and funny. He knew how to use his controversy to kind of help his, you know, bank account as well as the people he was fighting. So I think all around, he's just like really, as they say, remarkable in the term that he's worth remarking upon because he's so distinctive. We'll talk more about how Muhammad Ali won over the country of Zaire with someone who watched it up close, legendary reporter Jerry Eisenberg. And what was it like to be inside the ring with Ali? Here's George Foreman talking to Today Show host Gail King a few days after Muhammad Ali died in June 2016. Did it feel like a rumble in the jungle to you? Because I've heard you say it's hard to fight somebody that you admired and loved. Yeah, it was like I was mugged in the jungle. (laughs) I went there with two title belts. I came home with none. (laughs) And what was it like to get a punch from Muhammad Ali? It it, it was really strange. I thought I'd knock him out in one or two rounds, but about the third round, I'd hit him, and he fell on me. I thought, that's it. And he started screaming, that all you got, George? Show me something. And I knew then I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) 
tell me how you and Muhammad Ali met? Rome, 1960, in the Olympics. August 25th, 1960, the Rome Olympic Games. 18-year-old Cassius Clay, later to be known as Muhammad Ali, is one of the members of the United States team and is the favorite to win the Olympic light heavyweight boxing gold medal. He won the light heavyweight title, and yeah, that didn't mean anything to me. It didn't mean anything to anybody, really. Uh, but I was in the Olympic Village, and he was sitting on the steps with the gold medal around his neck. Mm-hmm. And he would yell, I'm going to be the greatest fighter that ever lived. I'm going to look how pretty I am. I was called the mayor of the Olympic Village because I was so popular. I just went all around meeting and greeting everybody. But my main goal when I got to the Olympics was the winners. I said, this is a guy I got to keep an eye on. That's how we met. There are only three reporters who have covered every single Super Bowl, and Jerry Eisenberg is one of them. At 88 years old, he's a living legend with a career that goes back more than half a century. He's been covering sports since 1951, starting at the Newark Star-Ledger. And although all sports reporters had a professional interest in Muhammad Ali, Jerry Eisenberg was one of the few to have a personal interest as well. Muhammad and I were friends for over 50 years. Right. And he was a good, shared a good part of my life and I of his. In terms of the way Ali started, he, he won the gold medal in 1960, but how long had he been boxing before that? Well, since he was about 13. He had a bike, and he was very proud of it, and it was stolen. And he went into the police station and said, I want to learn to fight because I'm going to go beat somebody up. They stole my bike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as luck would have it, there was a guy named Martin who ran the boxing program for the Police Athletic League. And he said, well, don't go beating people up. Get Come to me, and we'll see what we can do. And uh, he, he was gifted from the start. There wasn't any question about that. One thing about Ali, among heavyweights, we just talk about the heavyweight division. Mm-hmm. He was not the best heavyweight that I ever saw. I mean, people say, well, he was, he was not the, the best. No, he wasn't the greatest. Uh-huh. He couldn't have been. I mean, you measure him against Joe Lewis, and you measure him against okay. Rocky Marciano. But he was the most creative. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, which is far more important, he made the biggest impression, not on America, but on the world, all during his tenure. I fight in Africa because I'm fighting in my homeland. America is not my original homeland. My original homeland is Africa. And after, after 400 years of being separated, me and thousands of more American blacks will be returning home after 400 years. I've always thought that he was an incredibly smart boxer. Is that true, do you think? I said, you know, you break all the rules. You can't, you're not supposed to be able to punch backing up, which he could do. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to carry your hands so low, which he always did. He said, let me tell you something. These fellows, he's talking about heavyweights, are big and clumsy and slow. All of them. And I saw a film of uh, Ray, Sugar Ray Robinson. And I figured he could box rings around these guys. He just didn't have the size. And I do. He said, but if they all boxed like he did, I'd set down on my punches and I'd be a puncher instead. Whatever they couldn't do, that's what was going to make me the best. I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his hands can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. He think he will, but I know he won't. They tell me George is good, but I'm twice as nice. And I'm going to stick to his butt like white or right. That's right. 
So let's talk a little bit about Rumble in the Jungle. You were there. Yes. And and just tell me a little bit about the lead up to that, You've how you found yourself there. The way they showed me, I, I was going to cover it anyway because I was covering all his fights at that point. But what really intrigued me was I sat in the U.N. plaza outside of the U.N. a month before I left with a guy, so help me, his name was Shimpupu Washimpupu. He was the PR guy for this thing. And he said to me, well, hotels like the Waldorf, restaurants, oh, all restaurants like 21 Club and blah, 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 blah. Well, of course, it was all a lie. It was, it was, the, the country was in shambles. Right. But he said one thing to me, and as a newspaper guy, I couldn't resist it. He said, you know, this fight will be in a soccer stadium, beautiful soccer stadium. It was a dump within re- reasonable distance of the very spot where uh, Henry Stanley, explorer slash newspaper guy, wow. discovered, was looking for uh, Livingston, Livingston, the missing yeah. doctor. And it was at that spot by those fools that he said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Well, you couldn't have kept me away with a gun <laughs> because that, that, that's what I wanted. The thing everybody wanted to know leading up to the fight was what kind of shape Ali was in. He was an underdog for sure, but how much of an underdog? Jerry Eisenberg and a reporter from the New York Post named Jerry Lisker went up to Ali's training camp in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania before the fight to see him for themselves. While the Jerrys were there, they met a man who not only ran the camp, but also was an integral part of Ali's career, Gene Kilroy. And Kilroy had told me that he had terrible arthritis in both hands and had not hit the heavy bag for a year and a half. And somebody came up with a new kind of heavy bag. And at the same time, Kilroy took him to Philadelphia, to the hospital, to a very famous um, doctor who said, okay, you tell him to cut out the shots. He takes no more Novocaine, no more Carbocaine, nothing. No more shots, period. He bathes his hands in hot paraffin wow. four times a day as hot as he can stand it I ain't going to cure him but he's not going to have that much pain when he fights and that's what happened so Les Lisker and I walk up, go up to Deer Lake in Pennsylvania where he trained now Ali has eyes and radar detectors in the back of his head and his shoulder blades and he knew we were standing in the doorway but he pretended he didn't so he's actually pounding the heavy bag. First time I've seen him do it in almost two years. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, I'll knock that sucker out. Oh, hi, guys. Like, you didn't know we were there, right? And I said, you're going to knock him out? And he said, I will knock that sucker out. And then when we left camp that day, Lisker said, what do you think? I said, I think I'm picking him to win by knockout. And Lisker said, well, how, how can you do that? I said, a long time ago, he said to me, if I say a mosquito can pull a plow, don't argue. Hit your mop. This man has never knocked nobody out cold. He's a bully. He's slow. He has no skill, no footwork. He's awkward. And I have been given him a name. I named Floyd Patterson the rabbit. I named Sonny Liston the bear. And he shall be known officially as the mummy. <laughs> the mummy. And why, why the mummy? Because he fights when he's fighting. If you ever watch him in the ring, he 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 drags like that after his opponent. <laughs> so now we get ready to leave for Africa. We get there, and first thing we find out is Foreman is living downtown in Kinshasa at the Omni Hotel. Ali is living in a military compound called Anselli. 
And we were living in it silly too, so it gave me more time with him, which was good. Anyhow, we were working up to the fight, and now I got to tell you this story too. First of all, we're getting ready to get off the plane, and, and Ali says to Kilroy, who don't these people like? And Kilroy's white, and he said, well, I wasn't going to say white people. So I said the Belgians, because they occupied the country. So he gets off on the tarmac. There's about a 1,000 people out there. And he, he puts his hands up, and he says, George Foreman is a Belgian. And they mm. go wild. Right. And right. I will avenge this country. Now they start shouting, Ali, Boumaye, Ali, right, Boumaye. Right. He says to Kilroy, find out what that means. And the guy tells him, it means Ali, kill him. Everywhere Ali went, all the time he was there, on every street corner, he would lead the crowd in those chants. And they got inside Foreman's head. So was this a form of psychological warfare? Because the, the, uh, clearly George Foreman is not Belgian. You know, psychologists and academics would call it that. I would say it was Ali. I mean, he just decided he was, he was going to make himself the, the, the sentimental favorite. Right. And and everywhere he went, the crowd would yell, Ali, boom, yay. Except one guy I met on the street who said, Foreman's better. And I said, really? He said, Foreman, boom. That's all. <laughs> well, Foreman was considered a, a stronger fighter, was he not? Oh, oh he, would, he was considered an animal. A lot of guys thought he would hold the title for 50 years. Right. I'll tell you one better. He's in a gym filled with Zaiwa, and he, you know, he trains, and then he's got the microphone like most of the heavyweights do now, and he walks around a ring answering questions and talking, and he said, let me tell you something. Did you see the big dog that George Foreman brought with him to this fight? And he said, yeah, it was a German shepherd. He said, that big dog? He said, that dog was a Belgian shepherd. George <laughs> Foreman is white, and I will defend this country. Well, they went crazy, you know. There weren't four people in, 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 in all of Zaire who thought Ali could win, but there weren't four people in, in all of Zaire who liked George Foreman after right. Ali got through. Right. And it really got closer and closer to Foreman, really got under his skin. Ali was making up this story about Foreman. Of course. I, I, listen, you have to listen very carefully to Ali to separate the wheat from the chaff. <laughs> Fast, fast, fast. Last night I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. The hype leading up to the fight was like nothing that had ever happened for a sporting event before. All of Kinshasa, all of Zaire, and all of Africa was ready to see Ali go up against the Belgian mummy that they had heard so much about. But then, George Foreman injured his eye during training, and the fight had to be delayed. Well, first of all, George gets cut sparring. Now, the fight's going to be delayed five weeks. Right. Ali and Kilroy, they make up this story. They say, he's going to go home. You better put an armed guard in front of his door. So the next morning, George wakes up, opens the door, and there's a guy with a Tommy gun, and he's really enraged, and that's what Ali is doing. Well, he's not the first guy that Ali did it to. Here comes the Ali people out of the dressing room, and all of the After weeks of build-up, the night of the fight finally arrived. 
On October 30, 1974, a crowd of 60,000 were in the stands of the soccer stadium in Zaire, and a billion people were watching around the world. The enthusiasm begins to mount here. One thing we want to look out for is just how fast this man, George Foreman, will open. As we mentioned, in his past several fights, he hasn't gone in the past four years beyond two rounds in any fight. Spectacle aside, the fight itself is most famous for a technique Ali used to tire Foreman out called rope-a-dope. A lot of boxing experts say that Ali went into the fight knowing that this would be his strategy. Tremendous left hook. Here we go, Ali quickly across the round. And Jerry Eisenberg was ringside, close enough to hear Ali's trainer, Angelo Dundee. And Jerry has a very different theory about how the rope-a-dope strategy came to be. Officials in attendance are tightening up the ropes to prevent Ali from leaning back. And Angelo Dundee, the trainer of Ali, came racing across the ring and really did some yelling. There was no plan. Trust me on this. I don't care all the experts you talk to. Right. There was no freaking plan. He got hit in the throat early. And it wasn't damaging, but he realized how hard this guy could punch. Mm -hmm. So he goes to the corner and puts his hands up in his shell, figuring, I got to figure this out to let this guy, he's got big, heavy arms, maybe he can punch himself out, which is what happened. Well, George, like I told you, did not know how to fight. So he's trying to put his fist between the gloves to get to Ali's head. Ali has tremendous look of confidence. And Ali's blocking everything, and Ali's talking, and he's laughing. You hit like a girl, George. You hit like a girl. Is that the best you got? Is that all you got? Is that... right. And George is getting madder and madder. And he's doing the same dumb thing over and over and over. Ali sits back in the ropes and tells Foreman to come in. Foreman looks like, uh, well, a bit arm-weary until that right hand is trying to set Ali up. Ali doing exactly what he's actually not supposed to do, leaning up against the ropes and taking the punches of the heavy-hitting George Foreman. Yeah, well, everybody knows something. He was in the corner because he was smart. He said, I got to get the hell out of here and figure out this guy out. So he lets George just keep punching him, and, and the whole time he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do? How am I going to... He figured once he saw uh, George grunting and George getting upset, he figured exactly. And when it came to the next-to-last round, he hit him with a sneaky right hand, and George backed up for a second. And Ali said, no, I got it. Angelo Dundee screaming from the corner, Ali, get off those ropes. But Ali continues to talk to... In the fifth round, Ali turns to Dundee and says, shut the hell up, I know what I'm doing. Because now he did know. Were you worried? Did you think he's going to lose this fight? Like we, we... As the fight went on, the longer it went, the more I knew he would do something. You knew that he would he would turn it around? Yeah, well, he, I, I picked him to knock him out, and he said he would, and I believed him. So now, anyway, we're in the, the round that's going to end it. And now he steps one step forward, hits him with a lead right. Yeah. And George goes back toward the ropes. Then he hits him with another lead right. And now he staggers and he hits him with a left hook, but that was meaningless because he was on his way down. Another sneaky right hand. This time he works over the shoulder. When George fell, it was like somebody had chopped down the Eiffel Tower. Mm. He went in sections, like his ankles hit, then his knee hit. And he claims he beat the count, but he didn't beat the count. And he was, and if he had beaten the count, 
he would have taken a bad beating. This is the most joyous scene ever seen in the history of boxing. This is an incredible scene. The place is going wild. Muhammad Ali has won. Muhammad Ali has won by a knockdown. By a knockdown. So now the fight's over, okay? Now we got a right. He, Ali gets the hell out of there, which is not like him, but he does it because the sky is ominous. We get an African cloud burst. If it had happened an hour earlier, there'd have been no fight. There was water above our, our almost up to our knees. Right. And and then uh, we go back, and I said, I'm on the bus going back, and this is like two hours after the fight, and I said to Dave Anderson from the Times, I said, Dave, I'm going to go look for him now. I'm not happy with what I wrote. I, I don't even know what I wrote. It was so fast and the satellite and everything else. And So, okay. He says, I'll, I'll go with you. But I, where are we going to look? There's, there's, there's miles of acres here. I said, we'll go down by the river. Which, that's Ali. That spiritual Ali would go to the river in my mind. Mm -hmm. And he was there. Now, we're on a little rise, maybe maybe 15 yards behind him. He can't see us. There's nobody around him, no circus, no hangers-on, no, no, no wannabes. He's there all by himself staring across the Congo River, just staring and not moving. Now, I don't know whether he's talking or crying or singing. We can't hear what he's doing, but we can see it. I'm going to read exactly what I wrote. Yeah. Two hours later, I saw him as I had never seen him before. He was alone. No retinue, no spectators, no one, no one to perform for. He was alone with his thoughts as he stood by the river. The day before, he had stood in that same spot as a heavy underdog, an aging ex-champ, and a man who, without whining, had taken more crap from his own government than all the white-collar criminals in America. Now he turned and walked toward us. First, though, he raised his hands without knowing we were there, in the rocky pose. And each time I think of him, despite all the stuff I saw with him and shared with him, despite all the negativity that he generated and, and the triumphs he generated, each time I think of him now, I will think of him that way, proud, strong, hands raised to heaven. He was in that moment the king of the world. What do you think the enduring uh, legacy of Rumble in the Jungle was and will be? Well, for people who believe in David and Goliath and Joshua and the wall, mm -hmm. it's proof they might be right to them. Right. Do you think it gave people hope? It gave people like a sense of like they could achieve whatever they I don't think to. so. I know so. It gave them whatever they were lacking or whatever they might. The point is, he gave them things that they did they always had but but didn't but always felt they would lack and weren't lacking he gave people dignity and he had a story that he made people believe in i think i couldn't have said that better because that that's exactly it hope really sprung eternal if you paid attention to him didn't i tell all of you out there on your local radio shows mostly black stations i told you I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. So that's what happened. Muhammad Ali lost his title and regained it a third time before he retired in 1981. 
Ali and Jerry Eisenberg stayed close friends until Ali's death at the age of 74 in 2016. Muhammad Ali's spirit, his body is down, but his spirit is up. And it will stay up as long as we keep it up. Imam Zaid Shakir at Muhammad Ali's funeral in his hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. And we keep it up as long as we live with the grace and dignity he lived with. As long as we love with the passion he loved with. As long as we share and care and give with the boundless generosity he exemplified. The same week of Muhammad Ali's funeral, his old friend, reporter Jerry Eisenberg, was inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame. So God, as we leave this hall, as we depart from this August gathering, may we be blessed to love as he loved, to live as he lived, to share as he shared, to care as he cared, to the extent of our various capacities, and to float as freely as he floated. Next time I'm lost at the Smithsonian. What else are you going to show us? I see a laptop. I discovered a 20-year-old laptop from a groundbreaking TV show. This was actually used on the television show Sex and the City. Uh It's Carrie Bradshaw's laptop. Is that right? That looked vaguely familiar. I'm going to tell you a story now that's going to blow your mind. I have worked with this laptop on Sex and the City. Okay, tell me exactly what happened right before you crashed. I was, you know, I was just typing and then he came over and he kissed me. Lost at the Smithsonian is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our executive producer and editor is Ellen Weiss. Technical support from Robin Wise. Fact-checking from Danielle Roth. And scripting by Alex Berg. Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford and John Delore. Original theme music by Casey Holford. Our supervising producer is Jordan Bell. And our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, Eric Jentz, Ryan Lintelman, John Troutman, and Laura Duff, for all their help in making this show. Lost at the Smithsonian is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. I'm your host, Asif Manvi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Asif and Facebook at Asif Manvi. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening.